the Future Proof Podcast from Newstalk. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Hashtag believe in science. Hello and welcome to Future Proof on News Talk. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Thank you for subscribing, downloading, rating, as always, and for all of your comments and emails. We do enjoy hearing back from you what you thought of the show, uh, so do keep them coming. Science at Newstalk.com. You can also tweet us. We're at Newstalk Science. Coming up on this week's show, the brilliant Beth Shapiro will join us yet again uh, to talk to us about where we are now with genetic modification. Um, before that, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me is Dr. Susan Kelleher from DCU and Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD. You're both very welcome, folks. Our first story is a really sad one, Shane, because I know yourself and myself were uh, very frequent um, visitors to what was a real pioneer and, and I suppose a jewel in the crown in, in, in some respects when it came to a science communication. The Science Gallery in Dublin is closing. Yeah, Jonathan, this is news that was broken by Emmett Ryan from the Sunday Business Post earlier this week. Really sad news. Uh, the Science Gallery is to close in spring 2022. It's been there since 2008. And uh, when I started in Trinity 150 years ago, uh, that corner of college really was like it was a car park and there wasn't much going on down there. Um, you know, we were advised not to be walking on the street at night down there. And um there's been a huge uh, regeneration and the Science Gallery has been, um, you know, front and centre to that. It's been a place where science and art have collided, started by a physicist called Mike Coey, uh, who got the money in to build the Nano Institute that's above and below Science Gallery. And the concept was developed by Michael John Gorman, um, the, its its initial director. And it, it is closing, they say, because of, of financial uh, insecurities. And I think there's a deep irony that a pandemic may have precipitated this, given that the Science Gallery is one of the few places, if not the only place in Ireland, maybe apart from this show, where th- there is a consistent, dedicated um, attention paid to the role of science in Irish society. It makes science noble, as one of my UCD colleagues said. Um, and I just think it's 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 an awful shame. Like Museums and places like this generally don't run on the idea that they turn a profit. So, um, you know, I, I think it's an awful shame. Um, I know that the Trinity College Board have not commented on this yet. And I, I'm really hopeful that something can happen uh, between now and the proposed close in the spring so that yeah. something can rescue the science gallery because we need it. You know, issues like COVID, issues like climate change, biodiversity, energy, all the things that we talk about on the program, they'll remain in the the realm of of just scientists talking about it, unless there are places like Science Gallery, like Future Proof, where scientists can connect with the public and crucially, the public can connect with scientists. Yeah. Um, One of the things that the Science Gallery did brilliantly was provoke commentary by doing um, unusual things uh, in that sort of overlap of of art and science um I, I often went there and thought oh that's a bit risque and that and that's what art should do it should make you think about the social issues of the day and huge numbers of of school students went in there and were exposed to to really radical ideas in, in some ways the other thing is it was so well designed um thought out marketed it was a really world class place i say was i mean it's it's not closed yet but the idea that that should close i think is um is really upsetting and i do hope 
billionaire philanthropists listen to this show because it, well that's one hope is, right yeah, like, yeah you know and that's how science gallery has stayed alive all through these years it's been it's like most other things in research it's built on soft money uh, people have to bring in grants to keep the show on the road people will be shocked to hear that's how virtually every piece of research in ireland is done i know cancer researchers that can't get jobs i think that's absolutely crazy in a modern society um that the the, the, the public good is not connected to these things and that there is not um, consistent state funding to keep them going. Um, I'm not saying fund everything, but keep them on life support so that they can go off and get that bigger pot of money from those mm. rich companies and philanthropists. Otherwise, we won't have places like universities, libraries, all that sort of stuff. And you know what? It'll be a sad world when we don't have them, when we're just left with tech companies in Dublin. Love to hear your thoughts on that. And uh, Shane, I don't know, maybe we, sh we should start a Save the Science Gallery campaign on, on the programme and see if we can do something uh, about that. But I, I don't know politically, not, I don't know where it is at the, at the moment to make that announcement. It seems pretty stark. I mean, even Dublin Zoo uh, made an appeal to, to, to the public um, before making an announcement. So I don't know, maybe it's a done deal. Mm. Um, we'll, we'll reach out to see if we can get some comment. Our second story, Susan, uh, has to do with our sense of smell. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you to imagine yourself in a room and a fire has just started in the room beside you. So what's oh. the first what's the first sense that kicks into action? Panic. Well, of your five senses, I mean. Oh, right. Sorry. Uh, well, it has to be smell because I can't see the fire. Yeah. So smell. So the point is that smell is one of the most powerful protective responses to dangers that we have if not their most so we recoil we respond when we smell things and um, even if you're smelling food that you think might be gone off the first thing you do is you know if you want to see if your food has gone off you smell it and then you will you know you recoil so for a long time this response has been believed to be a very conscious cognitive process but work published this week in the proceedings of the national academies of science has shown for the first time that this is unconscious and that it's extremely rapid so this is no mean feat as probing the olfactory bulb, which is the part of your body responsible for detecting smells and sending information about them, is pretty invasive. And the workers here in the Karolinska Institute in Sweden have figured out a way to measure these signals by placing sensors just above the eyebrows of the people that were involved in, in the study. Right. And the sensors, the way that they were designed was they basically extracted what are called space electrobulb gram signals from the olfactory bulb. So essentially picked up, they were very high resolution, incredibly detailed sensors that picked up what was going on under the skin in the nasal cavity um, and then saw what happened. So what they saw was when patients or participants were asked to smell good smells or bad smells, they saw that the signals for the bad smells was faster than the signal for the good cell uh, smell and that it went in around 300 milliseconds from your nose to your motor cortex in your brain which would then be the reason for our recoiling and for that physical response so wow. really instantaneous reaction to smells and then pulling away or running away if it's fire etc so it really kickstarts that um, response to dangers so really interesting stuff so, so um, much like if we touch something that's hot and our hand pulls away, you're saying that our our sense of smell is directly linked to to that motor cortex. That as soon as we smell something that's that's disgusting, we move quickly to to react to it. I find that quite strange because I suppose 
when um, we think of something like heat, you know, you've um, instantaneous danger of burning of tissues, whereas um, in the natural world, at least, you know, if we're talking from an evolutionary point of view, the need to get away quickly is not so intense, I would have thought. If you smell something bad, it's not as dangerous as, you know, being burnt or or, or being cut. It's well, kind of unusual. I suppose smell is so incredibly integrated into taste. So perhaps it came from, you know, putting something towards your mouth and then smelling it and then going, well, I better not eat that because if I did, I mm. might die. So perhaps it comes from that. But of course, we know the Nobel Prize just was awarded around these heat sensors. So perhaps there's more about our nose in that sense that we'll yet learn um, in terms of the... the um, the triggers and the receptors involved. So we'll see. Um, I'm reminded of those um, those many thousands of people who got COVID um, over the past 18 months and lost their sense of smell. Wondering if, if that was you, if you did lose your sense of smell uh, and you did while you contracted COVID, has it returned? I'd love to hear from you. You can text us 53106 for 30 cent. Shane, our third story has to do with wave energy. Um, COP26 is, is around the corner and lots of countries, as, as every time uh, COP25, COP 24, 23 has come around, making big pledges for net zero. Um, this is something uh, that is very difficult to achieve, but might be easier if we were to harness the power of the sea. Yes, um, you're right. Like countries are making all sorts of promises and we're going to need all the science and technology we can get to help us achieve those targets. And um, there's there's one that's been published in ACS Nano, a journal I used to publish in when I, when I was a nanoscientist uh, that came out this week. And it talks about wave power. Now, this has been long spoken about, but, but there hasn't been a huge amount of development. It hasn't gone the way of solar and, and wind. Um, yeah. And and that's for, for good reason. The, the the ocean is a very corrosive place. Salt water will destroy everything. Waves, as we know, are very powerful and they're intermittent. So it's hard to generate power from a small wave and then a big wave. It's hard to develop technology that will do that. So this is what this study has done. It's a proof of concept. And um, they built a lunchbox sized device and um, it uses something called the triboelectric effect. It's a nano generator. Now, there's three ways of generating electricity using nanoscience. There's triboelectricity, which is like the balloon rubbing. rubbing. Yeah, there's piezoelectricity, which is generating uh, electricity from uh, materials that are under pressure. And there's pyro, uh, which is from, from heat, um, which I think is a fascinating one. And we can come back to when I've, I've read that book. But uh, the triboelectric <laughs> effect here is, is fantastic. And what they've done is they've built... Um, a little cogged device. So it looks like gears on a bike. And what, what it's able to do is it uses um, a plastic that, that kind of rubs. So that's like the balloon rubbing action. And uh, as the wave moves up and down in a very gentle wave, it, it uses this one cog to do that. And it, it can it can build a charge and it can um, get it away from, from the, uh, the, the action using copper, which is very electrically conducting. And it builds up electric charge that way. If the waves get bigger, it moves on to a different cog. So it's like a different gear on a bicycle. And, right. and it, so it's able to literally step it up and accommodate the extra uh, electric generation that those larger waves uh, can produce. So it's able to harness electricity from the constant small waves and the occasional enormous waves. I'd imagine that this sort of technology could be rolled out perhaps at the beginning in inland lakes, you know, places where there's a little bit more control and you can move out then to sea. 
uh, the scientists involved have been able to do back of uh, the envelope calculations as we do and then pass it all over to the engineers uh, and <laughs> you should be able to get one million gigawatts out of this off you exactly go. but you know um the, what's great here is that the materials involved are cheap right you don't need to go mining things uh which is a whole other ethical issue of digging this stuff up out of the ground so we can make triboelectric materials cheaply um, and uh, it's uh, you can find that material uh, uh, everywhere. Copper is is expensive, of course, but everything else is cheap. And I think that's great. And we need a lot more thinking like this. And we need to be open to to where it could take us. So, but what 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 is the back of the envelope prediction in terms of energy? Like, is is it, is it as good as solar per square? What? Well, you see, it's hard to say. So like when they build these things first, what they do is they show it works. And then the next level is sort of, you know, orders of magnitude and improvement by tweaking the technology. So like, you know, they're talking about building hectares of this uh, across an, an ocean uh, to, to generate any meaningful amount of electricity. That's a long way of saying I don't know, but thanks, Shane. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a scientist. I have 20 years of training of, of avoiding questions I can't answer. <laughs> uh, Susan, our final story has to do with robot cats. Yeah, so this is, you know, it's rather heartwarming, but also a little bit sad, um, where pet therapy was used as a study to mean... Um, as a means to improve the mood and behavior of individuals at Alzheimer's. And as you said, it specifically looked at robot um, pet cats as an affordable alternative to live animals. So researchers from Florida Atlantic University studied the mood and behavioral symptoms of older adults with mild to moderate dementia. And they interacted with these robotic cats over 12 visits in a daycare center. Results showed that the intervention with the cat improved all mood scores over time using three different scales for measuring depression and mood for people with dementia. And the participants who, um, they were told now the cats were robots. So that was, that's, I think that's important to make clear. They were shown to frequently talk to them and that they said that they felt like they were being listened to and some of them even slept with the cat beside them. Um, so it, they really seem to, to bring companionship, um, which is really interesting. The authors, of course, point out that since there's no cure for dementia, the ability yet, I should say yet, the ability to address symptoms um, without pharmacological interventions is a real bonus. And perhaps this might be a way to provide improved quality of life for people living with dementia. Yeah. Is, is this a Japanese study? Do you think um, culturally we might see um, different responses from different cultures where robots are more acceptable and more common? That, that's a really good question. This is done in Florida. So um, oh. I, don't, I don't know, but I, am, I imagine there's going to be, yeah, maybe more uptake with people where robots are sort of more part of the household or at least it's more commonplace. So very interesting, uh, very interesting take and certainly cheaper than maintaining a live cat. And also um, for the, the welfare of, of kittens and cats um, being cared for from patients who have dementia, obviously it's a much higher risk as well. Um, Dr. Susan Keller from DCU and from UCD, Dr. Shane Bergen, thanks as always. Now, if you look outside your window, you'll see puppies, rainbows, beautiful mountains sometimes, depending on where you are. Nature is amazing, uh, but some people think nature is not good enough. They're geneticists who want to tinker with what nature had intended to make things somehow better. Beth Shapiro uh, is an author and professor uh, of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of, San of California, Santa Cruz, and has written a new book called Life As We Made It, all about these people. She joins me now. <laughs> Beth, good to have you back in the program. How are you? What an introduction. Thank you. <laughs> 
You're wrong, first of all. You're wrong. It's not that we think nature isn't good enough. It's that there's all this potential of what we could do with nature to help nature to adapt to a world with us. And we are certainly not particularly good as a species. (laughs) (laughs) No, obviously, um, I'm I'm part joking when I, I, I talk about you know, the work that gene editing scientists are doing today. Um, but this is the this is the focus of your book. You're, you're looking at uh, gene editing techniques. And the argument you make is that we've been doing this for quite some time. We've been messing around with genes in, in different ways. And, and there is there is good and bad. And there's implications with with doing this. Um, talk to me a little bit about the, the early days of this messing around. Like how long ago was it since we were fiddling with with genes um, that wouldn't have mixed otherwise. Well, we can go back tens of thousands of years, but I I would like to say that, you know, the the gene editing technologies that we have today are different from these technologies of the past. And and it's it's wrong to just lump everything together and say they're the same. I mean, we've never before been able to directly modify genomes. That said, there's a, a huge swathe of people that like to think of this as some giant leap into the, some unknown territory. This is something that we as a species have never been involved with before. And, and my point really is that this is different, but it's kind of the next step in something that we've been doing for you know tens of thousands of years. The, the first evidence of us doing this kind of stuff really comes um, from the fossil record where we see that as people are dispersing out of Africa and around the world, we have massive megafaunal extinction events pretty much everywhere. In some places, these coincide with climate shifts. In other places, they don't. But it's clear that we are driving lineages extinct by hunting, by changing the landscape, whatever. But regardless of, of how the me- what the mechanism is, the consequences of the ecosystems are pretty stark. We turn up and stuff changes, right? That, though, wasn't necessarily deliberate. We didn't intend to make things extinct or to change landscapes when we first turn up. But that changes. Sometime around 10 to 15,000 years ago, when we start really manipulating species to become something that we like better. This is the early phases of domestication and agriculture, where we take wild species and transform them into something else. We're extending our dominance over nature there. And then, you know, maybe 100, 150 years ago, we start to see that the consequences of this are that other species that we don't consider to be our domesticates are starting to go extinct. And so we take on the role as protectors, as conservation biologists and conservationists in general. And this is really not leaving species alone and letting nature be as nature is, but extending our dominance over species to everything, everywhere in the world. So now that we are decidedly in charge, we see that we're again facing all of these potential catastrophes, this massive extinction crisis that's ongoing right now, and we have a choice. We can stand back and see what happens, or we can get even more involved. And this is what I argue these new technologies are best suited for. We can use our technologies that we've had not to bring stuff back from the extinction, which is what we've talked about before when I've been on this program, but to help species that are alive today and in danger of becoming extinct, perhaps survive in a human dominated world. Okay, so you know, we, we saw Jennifer Doudna and her colleagues recognized for the Nobel Prize last year for creating this tool, CRISPR-Cas9, which we've spoken about many times in the program that allows a sort of specific editing of, um, of the genetic sequence of organisms to change 
what they do, uh, what sometimes what they look like, or sometimes uh, the sort of things that we can get from them. Uh, talking about plants, for example. Before we go into you know the, the ethics of fiddling around with that, I wanted to ask you where are we now because we've had that technology for quite some time and we've been hearing about new versions of that. What is the latest uh, in in terms of genetic editing? How precise and how careful can we be when we are editing the genomes of of organisms? Well, the, you know, there are lots of different Cas proteins now that people are are learning about that can do different things. Uh, sometimes they don't even edit the genome. They just go in and grab a hold of the genome and stop genes from being expressed. The efficiency of edits is improving. We still can't make you know, thousands of change at a time. Um, George Church's team did make several thousand edits at once to a genome, but they kind of cheated because they were all the same edit. So they were targeting a part of the genome that occurs thousands of times, and they just made the same edit a lot. So the goal really is to have this technology be as precise as possible. We want to go in and make very specific change, and that's improving. But we're certainly not at a place where we're ready to massively deploy this. But I think this is a it's a super exciting technology with tons of potential for really um, changing the foods that we eat, um, the, the way that we interact with nature, et cetera. I think one really critical thing to think about with, with CRISPR, which separates it from other gene editing techniques, is that with CRISPR, it's possible to, very, to make very specific changes that would otherwise could, could occur in nature just by, by breeding. But instead of having to wait generations and blend an entire genetic background, you get a very specific change. One example of this, and, and we call this cisgenic technology. So it's not transgenic. There's no DNA coming from other organisms. It's just DNA from the same species. And some good examples, a really nice example, I think, of both how, how promising this technology is and the the challenges of actually working with this technology in the current regulatory framework is from a, a story about a cattle. Um, there's a woman, Alison Vanineman, who's at UC Davis, who is working to engineer dairy cattle that don't grow horns. So right now they grow horns. They have to be um, either chemically castrated or physically castrated. It's expensive to farmers. It's painful for the cows. It's a, it's not good. But we have other breeds of cattle that have naturally evolved hornlessness. They have a genetic mutation that means they don't grow horns. And one example of this is Angus beef cattle, which, you know, we've been eating for a long time. And so we eat this gene that doesn't allow us to grow horns. And her idea was if we can just swap out that gene in Angus for the gene in Holstein, then we can make dairy cattle that don't grow horns. But if we just breed them together, then we get animals that are half beef and half dairy, and they're not good for either. And it erases decades of selective breeding by farmers and also Hmm. makes it more expensive for farmers to have these animals. So they used gene editing technologies. They didn't use CRISPR, but they used a slightly older version of gene editing technology because this started a while ago, and they created uh, dairy cattle that are exactly like all other dairy cattle, except they have this one allele that is from beef cattle, and they don't grow horns. So this sounds great, right? Here we have something that is clearly safe. We've been eating it for a long time. We've not made any other changes to the genome except for this one particular allele, and we have dairy cows now that can make loads of really great quality milk and don't grow horns. Now, the challenge is that in the U.S., the FDA regulates animals that have been gene edited, and the USDA regulates plants. So the USDA has decided that in this case, if you know you, you create something that could have been created by normal breeding, it's not considered strange, it's not regulated, whatever. 
The FDA, which regulates animals, considers all these products, even if they could be created in nature, new animal drugs. And in order for her to be able to use these animals on the market, she would have to go through the same process that drug companies have to go through to get new drugs onto the market, which of course is super long and really expensive and not at all something that somebody who's working for a public university has the capacity to do. And so this is this is part of the challenge of this. We can see that there's such great potential, and this is just scratching the surface of potential, but there's no really coordinated regulatory framework. We won't even talk about international frameworks where everything is messed up and nobody agrees with each other about what should happen. Hmm. But this is really, you know, this is an avenue where we're really going to have to think about this technology. Yeah, I, I mean, I suppose people who have scratched the surface of the subject may be forgiven for thinking that there's a general feeling that scientists are pro-genetic modification of, of, of foods and animals in any circumstances, just go nuts. And then and, and the people who are more, for, for example, um, into organic and local and rural farming are, are very much against this. I mean, that's not, it's it's more um, nuanced than that. And, yeah. and there are some some ethical issues that we need to think about when, when we're, we're thinking about mixing uh, genes, uh, sure. even from I, one I species that's very though, similar to another. The, this dichotomy is is important and kind of dangerous. You know, the, the mm. idea that it's either gene edited or organic. Organic is not the same thing as gene edited or not. You can have gene yeah. edited things that are grown in an organic way. So you can you can you can imagine a future where you could buy foods that are produced in an organic fashion that are also have been created using some of our new technologies, including gene editing. So there's not a, no, this isn't a very clear, clean cut dichotomy. No, absolutely. No. But um, on the, on the issue of, of ethics, when right. it comes to specifically uh, genetically modified organisms, there are a number of things that, that we do need to consider. Sure. I mean, obviously it, it depends on what you're doing, right? I mean, yeah. if you are, um, if you're creating, if you're, so the, a lot of people like to split here the, the challenges of cisgenic organisms and transgenic organisms. So cisgenic, again, that just means that when you're changing things, you might not be moving DNA at all. Maybe you're just turning a gene off or turning it up. So it's making more of itself. You're creating things that you could create just in a traditional breeding program, um, but you're cutting corners. You're not using breeding and hoping that the phenotype that's produced is this thing that you're looking for. You're, you're going right in there and you're, you're getting at that phenotype by doing a specific change. And transgenic might mean that you're moving things between species. Um, a, a great example of a transgenic organism that's good both for food and for the environment The environment is something called the EnviroPig. I don't know if you've heard of this. Um, no, I haven't. Created by scientists in Canada, in Guelph. And it's a pig. So one of the biggest problems in the pig industry, and this is an enormous industry across the world, is that farmers have to add phosphate to the pig feed because there's not enough of it in the environment. It's taken up really inefficiently by pigs and it's excreted. And then it just, it causes eutrophication of the landscape. It's really bad for the watersheds when the pigs excrete this much phosphate. So these scientists created a pig that have a gene from a microbe and a gene from a mouse. And this allows them to more efficiently take up the phosphate that the farmers add to their feed that's expressed in their saliva. So this means it saves the farmers money because they don't have to add so much phosphate. And it's really good for the watershed because the pigs are using the phosphate rather than spitting it all out, as it were, and causing it to get into the water and these algal blooms and, and terrible eutrophication landscape. But 
no one really knew what to do with the Enviropig when it was created. It was this new thing, a transgenic organism that was clearly good, but this was a public university that created it without very much money. There was a little bit of backlash. No one knew what regulatory pathway to take. And so it, it, it was frozen. Literally, there are some Enviropig cells that are in a freezer somewhere in Guelph. But apart from that, you know, this project is dead, despite that it could really revolutionize what is one of the largest and most polluting industries in the world. So there is a lot of ingenious thinking happening in the field of, of science and particularly um, looking at benefits you can have when you do this sort of transgenic science. One of the ones that really stands out from an early interview we did uh, was the spider goat, uh, which is a goat that has been um, genetically engineered to be able to produce spider silk in its milk, which is a hard thing to produce and very expensive um, traditionally. And also you can't farm spiders very well because they kill each other if they're in um, close proximity. And so the this goat was engineered to to make spider silk and it, it does a really good job of it. You can see the benefits of these sort of things, but then the question is what happens to the next generation? Like this Enviropig, were there uh, Enviropiglets? And what are the things we need to think about when we introduce children and future generations into the mix? Yeah, you know, obviously with any new technology, there's new risks that we we adopt. And there is something different and unique about engineering things in this way. I mean, we've been engineering plants and animals for as long as we've existed as a species, but we've not gone as far as really making reticulation in the tree of life and, and sending things off in a new direction. And obviously there are risks associated with this, as there are with any new technology. But there are also risks to being so frightened of this technology that we don't follow up on what this potential could be. The goats that make spider silk are, are one example of how goats have been engineered, but there are also goats that have been engineered to produce human antibodies. And goats are animals that can survive on really low quality forage. And the idea is that these goats can be used to actually provide a really rich source of nutrition and even healing style of nutrition for people that are living in places where they don't have access to modern medicine or to the resources that they would need to survive. So maybe the risks associated with creating spider milk goats are different, differently evaluated than the risks associated with something that's actually going to have a, um, some enormous benefit to human health. I mean, I, I don't know. I think we're we're on it's new ground we're paving here. Um, we've done this before, though. I mean, one of the things that people are scared about with this new technology is that there's going to be some accident. There's going to be a different mutation that is accidentally introduced that we can't predict, and we haven't really studied that mutation. And what do we do? And yeah, yeah I, I get that people are scared of that. But for decades, we've been using something called mutation breeding for plants, where we take plant babies and we stick them in a common garden environment and then zap the crap out of them with radioactivity or with chemical mutagens <laughs> that cause them to create thousands of mutations that we have no idea what they are in every genome. And then we grow them up. And if we like the fruit that they produce, then we're like, yeah, I'll take that one. Ruby red grapefruit, for example, was created in this way. And you go to the grocery store and you see ruby red grapefruit juice and it says none. GMO on it. Yeah, it's not GMO. If it were GMO, it would have one specific mutation that we understood as well as we could, <laughs> not tens of thousands of mutations that we have no idea what they are and don't even bother to characterize them. I'm not arguing that mutations are dangerous. They're not inherently dangerous. All of us have mutations that are different in our DNA than of our parents, etc. It's just there's such a logical fallacy in arguing that GMO is bad because there might be an accidental mutation that we are going to understand in the future, but we're not at all scared of things that are creating thousands of mutations by ways that we're just used to. So I want to finish up by asking uh, about the international landscape that you kind of alluded to, because we have seen interfering with 
human um, embryos uh, that have then in, been implanted into to human beings in China. There are probably experiments going on around the world using technologies like CRISPR that are absolutely unethical and are, uh, are absolutely illegal in all sorts of uh, modern so-called first world countries. My question is, do, do we have a handle on what's going on out there in labs across the world? And is it possible that um, we might see great benefits from the dodgy science that's happening behind closed doors? Ooh, that's a tough one. I, I, I mean, do we have a handle on it? One of the things about CRISPR that makes it great, but also kind of terrifying, is that it is relatively easy to do, right? I mean, it's still not super easy. I don't. You can't really do gene editing experiments. I couldn't do it. (laughs) Probably not. And I couldn't (laughs) do it in my, you know, but this, it's relative, it's much easier and less expensive for people to be able to experiment in this way. So we have a lot of worries out there about people engineering humans. And I think this comes from our fear of increasing the inequities that are already among us, that somebody is out there engineering a faster and smarter and better looking person. And that's just going to change the landscape of everything. I don't think that this is the thing that is going to cause us to get into engineering humans, just because this isn't how evolution works. We can't predict what is going to be the best person or the best anything in some future environment that we don't know what it looks like. You know, the evolution is just the thing that is the most fit in the environment in which it is born ends up being the thing that passes its DNA down to the next generation. And because we're trying to engineer something that might be fit today, I, I, I just don't, I don't see this as the Thing that gets us into human germline editing. Instead, I think I think it will happen, and I think it will be something like what we experienced over the last you know eighteen months, where there's a global pandemic. There's something terrible that's going out there, and then we discover that there are some people that have a particular mutation that is fixable using our technology. That means that they're probably going to die in whatever environment we are. And that will mean that suddenly this thing that is the most morally reprehensible thing that we can do, editing human DNA, will become the only ethical solution to the problem that we're sitting in. So it's going to be something like this that pushes us toward editing humans. And I think that will come from most people who are out there. It'll come from you know science that is open and people are talking about it rather than something that's going on in somebody's backyard. Of course, we can't stop people from doing anything. And I think that, you know, that is why we really have to worry less about how risky this technology is and try to figure out how to de-risk this technology and make it work as much as best as possible. Because our only defense against some rogue malicious actor is to really understand the technology, to understand its potential, to understand how to turn things around if things go wrong. And we can only do that if we allow ourselves to use the technology and to develop it. Final question. How many genes do we have to manipulate in a human to get them to breathe in carbon dioxide and breathe (laughs) out oxygen? No idea. Four? And is this it is <laughs> eleven. Okay, this is a great point, and this is another point to why this isn't like around the corner going to change everything that we know. We don't understand the the DNA, how the underlying DNA causes of so many traits that are out there. It's not as if scientists are like going to go. You know what? I would like my pet dog to be able to fly upstairs and check the door when the doorbell rings, rather than stand here and bark and make a lot of noise. We have no idea how many how many genes are involved with changing the gene expression needed to transform limbs into wings or to breathe carbon dioxide instead of oxygen. Um, We are at the early stages of understanding how DNA links to the way something looks and acts. And, and, you know, we're not close to 
I, I think it's a great research project for you, Beth. I think, you know, if, if you find yourself with some time next year, this would be one people would be very interested in. All the right. book is called Life As We Made It. It's, it's uh, as, as always, a fantastic read by Beth Shapiro. Uh, it's out now. Beth, thanks for your time. Thank you, Jonathan. Love having Beth on the program and she is as much fun off air as she is on air. So if you enjoy that, you'll, you'll very much like the book. Time to look back at some of your comments from last week. Producer Aidan McKelvey joins us uh, to go through them. How are you, Aidan? I'm pretty good. Thanks, Jonathan. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> Did you really, I mean, you just sort of, you didn't really think about that answer. I'm just wondering if that's what's going to be, it's going to be sort of like off the cuff sort of response to the whole rest of the podcast. If that's the way it's going to be, just check it out. Yeah, no, I just wanted to keep it conversational and I'm very, very interested in how you are. Okay. As ever. I'm oh, good. Great. Well, that's good to hear. I am. <laughs> so there's not much to riff off, though. You know, when you just say, I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> there isn't. Though. I mean, I know this is an awkward start to this thing, but like, you know, come to the table with something, you know, because otherwise this podcast, is, you know, it, it just loses a bit of oomph. Yeah. You just need a more penetrating question than how that's are true. you? That's true. That's true. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> how are your feelings on socialism um right so we were to, like actually not a question to to bring up in the a comments section of the podcast because no it could be like certainly 20 we minutes get a million long. texts on socialism <laughs> and also i know you feel quite strongly about it um so we were talking about the uh the leak that countries were saying one thing and then lobbying um, for lighter restrictions on fossil fuels to anyone who'd listen. And basically we're saying it's, it's sort of disappointing to hear um, that countries are, are still not getting it and still trying to get away with polluting our planet. Not to get up my soapbox here, but uh, so that's I was kind of saying, look, it's it's disappointing to hear that you're saying one thing and doing another. And column C tweeted us saying, I agree with your guest. However, it is the mirror image of reality. It is the vested interests who are pushing the false premise of a climate crisis and the IPCC did not say it's a code red for humanity. It was a speaker in the UN. More facts that are not. Okay, thank you for that. Sometimes, I mean, it is facts are important. Sometimes people just get things wrong, though, don't they? I don't think, you know, there's necessarily malice in it. I get things wrong all the time. Don't I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is like pulling as, teeth, bro. <laughs> as evidence from here. Yeah. Well, I, I'm in the spirit of getting things wrong, uh, I probably should point out that I have had back and forth with Colin before, who has always been very polite and uh, is very, you know, happy enough to debate without uh, resorting to insults. But he did more or less say to me before, he's very skeptical about the uh, climate change narrative as he would call it but he did acknowledge that the vast majority vast vast majority of scientists as we all know do acknowledge climate change yeah and um, but now he seems to be rolling back on that acknowledgement uh, in public <laughs> so you know he he, he well both were in public but so he also is getting some things wrong uh, so it's interesting that he's so quick to pull shane up on a slight misquote yeah it, it, i mean it is it is weird to still have people talking about false premises of a of a climate crisis, given just looking out the window. Um, is, is, you know, is a is pretty telling. We were also talking about universal sounds. We spoke to a, a researcher who was trying to figure out why words like rock um, are are rock and not some other word. And is there something quite rocky about the sound rock? 
that essentially distills the piece into <laughs> a very simple sentence. Um, Des Dillon says, that lady needs to look up Bunny the Sheep-a-Doodle and figure out how you teach a dog to understand words like concerned. Now, when I read that, I had no idea what um, Des was talking about, but I have since Googled Bunny the Sheep-a-Doodle. Aidan, are you familiar with Bunny the Sheep-a-Doodle? I'm not, I'm not even familiar with what a sheep-a-doodle is. I mean, I can probably extrapolate it's a mixture between a sheepdog and a poodle. But this is mind. literally the first, the first time I've ever heard the phrase. I like it. I like it a lot. Well, a bunny, the sheep-a-doodle, can talk. Do you want to hear a bit? Yeah, hit me with it. Hi, my name is Alexis Devine, and this is my dog, Bunny the Conversationalist. She's a one and a half year old sheep doodle We are currently using buttons to communicate. They're right back here as part of a study through the Comparative Cognition Lab at uh, UCSD. So when we first brought Bunny home, I had an outside button waiting by the door for her with uh, sort of no expectations of how far we'd get with this journey. Within a few weeks of modeling it, she was using it consistently herself to uh, request to go outside. And at that point in time, we added it to a larger board. And about six months into our journey, we came into contact with Leo Trottier and switched to his device, which is grouped based on the Fitzgerald key, which helps her to compartmentalize words. We usually have between two and three doggy playdates a day as per her requests. She also really likes the walk button for obvious reasons. So we haven't covered this in the program, but Bunny um, has like a soundboard. And if you want Bunny to say something, you ask Bunny a question and then she can press like yes or no or play or concerned <laughs> or ouch. <laughs> and and Bunny will will communicate back. Bunny the sheep a doodle. So A, thanks for bringing this our way, Des. B, that lady should totally look up Bunny the sheep a doodle. But C, Aiden, get me Bunny on the program. Or at least if you can't get Bunny, get Bunny's owner on the program, please. Okay, I'm taking notes here. So Bunny, option one. Uh, option two, <laughs> Bunny's owner. Option three, the researcher who probably taught her. And option four, our listener. Her, 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 her human's name is Alexis, um, which uh, also sounds like it could be a, a robot, but uh, is not. It's a real person, Alexis. And she, in collaboration with this... Um, lab apparently are trying to teach the dog to communicate beyond just woof woof um uh, i need to go pee pee so right so there is a lab but you, there is a lab want, there's a lab you yeah, want no, the it's a scientific thing i would like well i want the i want um alexis and and the lab maybe maybe we'll do a double hander we never do those yeah we certainly have never done one with a dog um <laughs> is is am i correct in thinking was there a, a monkey or a chimpanzee sorry who also could uh communicate in you a think similar of Project manner. Nim? Yes, I think I am thinking of Project um, Nim. We, yeah, we covered it on the show a number of years back. Um, there was a, a family that adopted a chimpanzee and tried to teach it um, human language um, with both sign language. You could sign quite well, but then they tried to also vocalize it. But as as the, the chimpanzee got older, um, when it was unhappy, it would do things like try to rip the child's arm out of the socket um, of in the family that it lived in. And there were a number of violent sort of incidents, which, I mean, were probably quite predictable. But this is the 60s and 70s. You know, they thought, well, no, you know, this is this is our child. Essentially, it was raised as a as a human child in a chimp body. 
but children get angry as do adults and when a chimpanzee uh, gets angry it has muscles um, three times the size of Tyson Fury so um, it injured its owners and family and then had to be put away oh no it's a sad story of Nim poor Nim now you know in the spirit of getting things wrong I think that was the story of Project Tim. <laughs> I, I did see a documentary on it, but I might be mixing it up with the story of other chimpanzees through history. But if you take all of the stories and mix them all together in the way I've done that's confusing and not entirely accurate, you get sort of a, a Showtime TV special that that is what I remember. So there you go. That's, that's how that, your memory that's works. That's my understanding of what happened. Well, yeah, let's get the, let's get the sheep-a-doodle. Let's get the sheep-a-doodle. Um, that could be really interesting. Okay, Dano. Okay. Um, Aiden, thanks as always. Uh, thanks to Simon Keane, the brilliant Simon Keane, who works very, very hard. Uh, Garrett Mahal, Steve McLoon on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof on Tuesday in which we find out how to kill a virus. In the meantime, stay curious. Music.